0: I'm Luke Griffin, and you're listening to Bushwick Podcast, local stories for a strong community here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We partner with organizations throughout the neighborhood to share their remarkable journeys and break down the important issues facing Bushwick today. This week, Bushwick and New York City at large are in the final stretch of the most important political race you probably haven't heard of.
1: It's important to come out and vote in this election uh, because this election is going to determine whether or not you feel New York City is a city for you. That's as simple as I'm gonna say, put it. Um, if you wake up every morning frustrated uh, with, with the fact that, You don't have the the opportunities that maybe someone did 10 years ago. This is the election to make that hurt.
0: The race is for an election that takes place next week on Tuesday, February 26th, and it's for a position called the New York City Public Advocate. What is the Public Advocate, and why is it so important that you personally hit the polls next week to cast your vote? We sat down with one of the race's leading candidates to find out. It's February 20th, 2019, and this episode is called Rafael Espinal for Public Advocate. There's a number of reasons why you might not know what the New York City Public Advocate does. And to get into those reasons, it's helpful to know a little bit about how the government works in New York City. Just like the United States government has an executive branch that's led by the president, the New York City government has an executive branch that's led by the mayor. And just like the United States government has a legislative branch that includes Congress, the New York City government has a legislative branch that includes something called the City Council, which is made up of representatives from all five boroughs. The mayor is responsible for doing things like appointing the leaders of city agencies like the Department of Education and signing bills into law. The city council, on the other hand, is responsible for things like writing the bills that might become laws and managing the city's budget. On the city council, there used to be a position that was somewhat confusingly called the president of the city council, and it had a lot of power over how the council worked. In 1989, the council made changes that gave those powers to other members and turn the president of the city council into a largely ceremonial role without a lot of real power. A few years later, in 1993, the name of the role was officially changed to the Public Advocate, and its chief responsibility was defined as being the top watchdog for the city's services and making sure that the city's government was doing right by the people of New York. Today, the Public Advocate is a pretty open-ended role that can do a lot or a little depending on who's in the position. The public advocate has the power to write and introduce bills in the city council, but not to vote on them. And they're technically second in line to take over as the mayor if the sitting mayor is unexpectedly unable to fill their seat. The biggest power the public advocate has, though, is what's called the bully pulpit. The bully pulpit is a fancy way of saying that the public advocate has a platform to be heard. And if they talk, then people like the media, elected officials, and New York City residents will listen. So while the public advocate may not have a lot of real power to solve New York City's problems... They do have the power to help shape the public conversation about how we confront those problems and to put public pressure on other elected officials like the mayor. Essentially, the public advocate is responsible for holding the city government accountable for its actions. With all that said, you might be wondering why we're having this conversation now in February when we just had elections back in November. Well, in those elections, our last public advocate, Letitia James, won the race to be New York State's attorney general, leaving the public advocate seat empty which leads us to next week, when we'll be voting on Tuesday, February 26th, to determine who will replace Letitia James to fill that seat. Since the position typically gets such little recognition and has so few real powers, the public advocate might seem like an unpopular seat for politicians to run for. Historically, that's been true, but this year, 17 different candidates will be on the ballot in what will surely be a close race. Why has it suddenly become so popular? For starters, The role can be an effective political launching pad. The last two public advocates have used the position to become the state attorney general, in the case of Letitia James, and in the case of her predecessor, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. But beyond that, we live in a time where the public discourse is more important than ever. And having a leading role in shaping that discourse, as the public advocate does, means wielding considerable, if informal, power to effect change in the city. Last week, for instance, we saw how the combined protest efforts of the public and a handful of local politicians moved Amazon to cancel their planned headquarters here in New York City. So who then are the 17 candidates competing to become the next public advocate? They come from a wide variety of backgrounds, from the private attorney Jared Rich to the former investigative reporter Namiki Konst, to the former leader of the city council, Melissa Mark Viverito. Since this is a special election, the candidates aren't running on traditional Democrat or Republican party lines. Rather, they're running on their own, like Nomiki Kant's pay folks more line, or Melissa Mark Viverito's fix the MTA line. What makes this race challenging to follow as a voter is that for the most part, the candidates all seem to believe in a lot of the same progressive policies, like paying folks more and fixing the MTA. If you haven't been following every detail of the race, it might seem difficult to understand how the outcome of this election will actually impact your day-to-day life. To help break it down and learn more about the platform that hits closest to home here in Bushwick, we sat down with one of the leading candidates in the race, Bushwick's own Rafael Espinal.
1: I'm city councilman Rafael Espinal. I am born and raised New Yorker. I actually grew up in East New York, Cypress Hills, Brooklyn. It's like the last neighborhood in northern Brooklyn after Bushwick.
0: It's a bit ironic that while Espinal has been involved in New York state and city politics for virtually his entire career, he never planned on becoming involved in government. He grew up the son of Dominican immigrants in Cypress Hills, a neighborhood just to the southeast of Bushwick that Espinal describes as one of the most disinvested neighborhoods in New York City. He went on to study English at Queens College, and after he graduated in 2007, his first job was teaching adult literacy and GED courses. His life changed later that year, though, when a local politician named Eric Martin Delon was looking for a writer, and Espinal took the job.
1: I did not study uh, local politics or uh, political science while I was in college. I was more of an arts, English, film major. Uh, but when I graduated college, there was a, a local elected official looking for a writer, and I, I took the opportunity just, just to... You know, get a, get a local job while, while I, you know, be able to pay off some of my bills and, and just everyday costs until I try to go to grad school for uh, an M- MFA. Uh, but I, I kind of got sucked in into the conversation. I kind of saw or actually saw how local government is actually responsible for the everyday issues we face as New Yorkers. Uh, and as someone who grew up in a disinvested neighborhood, I saw it as a unique opportunity to really start using the position or the role to invest in those issues I struggled with as a child.
0: Though he may have initially accepted the writing role to help pay the bills, Espinall ended up working for DeLon full-time and within just a few years worked his way up to become DeLon's chief of staff. Things seem to have moved quickly from there. Espinall ran for his first public office in 2011 and won a seat in the New York State Assembly. Then in 2013, he ran for and won a seat on the New York City Council representing Bushwick, Cypress Hills, East New York, and the other neighborhoods in the city's 37th district. It's a seat that he still holds today. If you're not familiar with Espinal's record as a city council member, here's a quick highlight reel. At the start of his tenure, he worked with Mayor de Blasio on an ambitious rezoning project in East New York that helped secure over $250 million dollars for neighborhood projects and investments like improved facilities for schools, renovations to buildings for business use, and affordable housing. Espinal describes this achievement as the culmination of the early goals he had for his home community when he first ran for office.
1: I would say that I've been lucky to have been able uh, to accomplish all of the goals I set out for myself when I first ran for office. And that's getting historical uh, investments into North Brooklyn at levels we've never seen before. Uh, My first two or three years in the city council, uh, I was able to work with the mayor uh, to build real affordable housing in East New York and deliver over a quarter of a billion dollars uh, to the local community to rebuild our schools, rebuild our parks, create new job opportunities, help the homeowners, help the tenants, and really make an all-around comprehensive investment that's going to make East New York, I believe to be one of the better neighborhoods our city has to offer because of how diverse and inclusive it's going to be, but also because of the services that are going to exist. Later in his
0: tenure, Espinal began focusing on broader cultural issues in the city, specifically
1: around nightlife. As a as a millennial, throughout my early twenties, nightlife played a major role in being able to develop who I am today and and I saw the role it played in 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 creating a music scene that has created many great artists when you talk about the strokes the yeah Yeah yeahs when you talk about rappers like jay-z and all these great figures uh that's that was always that was able to exist because this the the the, the environment was different. and over the years we kept seeing the closure of music venues the closure of cultural spaces the closure of DIY spaces and for the first time ever We've had an elected official come to City Hall and talk about those things. uh, And we saw real progress on that.
0: He was instrumental in creating New York City's Office of Nightlife, an official government office responsible for connecting nightlife businesses like clubs and bars with city officials to help create better policies and regulations. And in 2017, he led the repeal of something called the Cabaret Law. Originally put into place in 1926, this was a law that made it illegal for businesses to allow dancing in venues that serve food or drinks without a special cabaret card. These cards were incredibly difficult to get and required businesses to meet nearly impossible requirements around things like security and zoning. For some perspective, in 2016, out of over 25,000 businesses that served food in the city, fewer than 120 had cabaret cards. Over the years, communities used this law to unfairly crack down on venues from jazz bars to underground gay clubs.
1: I tackled the No Dancing Cabaret Law, a law that a lot of elected officials were afraid to take on because of of community pushback from community boards and influential political figures in neighborhoods who saw the law as a tool for them to go after uh, nightlife establishments they have issues with. Uh, And it it really, I think it's important for, you know, anyone uh, in office uh, to be who they are and and to really tackle the issues that are important to them uh, and really block out all the other noise that comes with it. This is why we're elected. When he started
0: his career in office, Espinal describes feeling a kind of pressure to conform to accepted norms. But as his achievements in office have grown, so have his confidence and his sense of political identity.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be completely frank. Uh, When, you know, when I first got into office, Uh, There was this idea uh, lingering over my head that there was a certain way you had to compose yourself. There was a certain way you had to approach issues. Uh, Because if you didn't, you probably um, uh, face intense political pressures that might be a problem for you when you run for re-election. But at the same time, I felt that it was important for me to uh, be a voice... Uh, for, all, for, for all of those who are fed up with government. You know? Again, I didn't grow up with any government, governmental experience. I ran for office because I wanted to see real change. So as, as I progressed and as I got older uh, over the years, you know, I started flexing. Uh, my my own thoughts uh, throughout the process, uh, for example, I was the first city council member and the, to endorse Bernie Sanders and to go against the Democratic Party here in New York City, only because I felt that Bernie Sanders was going to, was going to be the best candidate for, for our city and our country.
0: More recently, he broke from party leaders by refusing to sign a now infamous letter recruiting Amazon to New York City in its search for a new headquarters. While this was somewhat controversial at the time, Espinal describes the move as simply holding true to his own values, and
1: doing his homework. I think there's two things that should infuri- infuri- infuriate you as, as a New Yorker uh, when it comes to the Amazon deal and the Amazon letter itself. One, uh, those folks who did sign the letter, and uh, and the letter clearly states, you know, we as a body urge Amazon to move to New York City because of X and Y reasons, because we have all these great am- amenities. Uh, those folks who signed the letter uh, decided over the, over the past few months that now they're 100% opposed to the fact that Amazon's coming to New York City. I think that in itself shows that the, there, there are folks in office who make decisions without thinking about the implications that might have on you as a New Yorker. Uh, that in itself should infuriate you. Uh, two, you know, it's easy, it, could, it would have been easy to do the research. You know, I, I think maybe, you know, I'm, I'm the only millennial that, that probably, that, that's in this race that didn't sign this letter as elected official. Uh, you know, I have my finger on the pulse. I know what's happening. You know, I know Amazon's responsible for the closure of many of our small businesses. I know that Amazon uh, exploits its workers. You know, I know that Amazon is responsible for a lot of the quality of life and livable, livable issues that, that Seattle's happening, ha- having on, on, on the city. Um, so I did not sign the letter because I was concerned about those issues. Right, Am I saying that because I did not sign a letter that I, I was not willing to talk about the potential and how can we shape the idea to be, make sure it's a idea beneficial to New Yorkers? No, but I, I didn't think it was right for me as a New Yorker, as an elected official, to put my name on a letter urging a company with this history uh, to come into New York City. you know, And so that's why I didn't do it.
0: He's quick to note that he's in fact the only city council member in the public advocate race who refused to sign the Amazon letter. And now that Amazon has pulled out of the deal after a sustained public backlash... Espinal's position seems especially prescient. Given that Espinal is, as he puts it, having such success achieving his goals in his community as a city council member, it begs the question, why is he now running for public advocate? In terms of pure legislative power, the non-voting public advocate role is a step down from Espinal's current position as a voting member of the city council. The position does, however, have other powers which can be helpful to shape citywide politics.
1: You know, there are real powers. So you do make appointments as well to important boards like the city planning board, the ones that are responsible for how your neighborhood is going to look over the next 10 years. Uh, you make an appointment towards the independent budget office, which is in charge of... Um, auditing the city's budget, making sure that it actually works, and making sure the numbers actually add up to what the mayor is proposing, the city council is proposing. So there's these important appointments you make.
0: For his part, though, why Espinal is running seems less about power than about the opportunity to build on his legislative achievements in his home district and serve the city more
1: broadly. First and foremost, I just want to say that uh, as a born and raised Brooklynite, tonight, I think Brooklyn is the center of New York City, and and we set the tone for uh, the trends that we're seeing across across the five boroughs. Uh, I think it's, it, those are the trends that we should be following, because I think I see Brooklyn as being the innovative, innovative borough uh, of our city. Um, but uh, as someone who represents Bushwick in East New York, and as, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, someone who... I think uh, has set the track to reach my goals and what I was hoping for my community. Of course, there's always more work to do. Um, I really, as a New Yorker, you know, I care about what's happening in the Lower East Side. You know, I care about what's happening in uptown Manhattan. Uh, I care about Staten Island, that feels that government has ignored them for for the history of the, of the, of the borough <laughs> existing. Uh, and I, you know, I, I my, one of my strong suits is that I'm a listener. You know, I, I'm not a big speaker. I'm not. Uh, someone who's gonna go up and 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 just spit out a lot of rhetoric. You know, I, I like to listen to folks. I like to figure out how government c- can actually work uh, to solve their problems. Uh, and you know, as someone who who grew up in a disinvested neighborhood, you know those frustrations that I've had of why government can't fix my park, I want to be able to bring that 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 passion uh, across all five boroughs and actually start. Uh, Speaking up for those who felt that they've been voiceless throughout throughout their time.
0: Ultimately, he recognizes that without the ability to directly pass legislation, the public advocate's biggest power remains informal.
1: But when it comes to the actual figurehead, uh, and the powers it actually has, I do believe the the biggest power is, is the bully pulpit and being able to set that conversation and, and set set the discourse for, for the future of our city.
0: But this is something that Espinal seems to welcome. He points out that some of his most tangible accomplishments as a city council member have come without actually passing legislation.
1: I've been successful as a council member on doing a lot of great things without actually putting policy forward. For example, you know, not, it's not unrelated to all of this, you know Major League Baseball, uh, the entire MLB baseball uh, extend the netting across the entire country to to uh, save to protect fans from getting hit with foul balls and, and baseball bats because we saw a lot of children, elderly people um, you know, unfortunately get hit with with, uh, with some of these flying, with some of these objects and end up in the hospital. And simply by raising the conversation and putting in a bill that I, that I didn't pass at the end of the day, I was able to be in a room with the owners of the Mets with the owners of the Yankees, with the commissioner of baseball, and talk about how Major League Baseball nationwide should implement new policy uh, to protect their fans. And that was simply just by using the bully pulpit. And it just shows how effective it can be if you're able to use it in in a way that uh, it's going to be effective.
0: More than anything, it seems that Espinal is ready, ready to tackle citywide challenges, and ready to represent not just Bushwick and the rest of the 37th District, but all New Yorkers.
1: I'm I'm proud and I feel uh, lucky to say that I have gotten there and or I'm getting there as by the time my, my my term will be over, uh, but it allowed me to kind of think about policy and how can I use you know my my time now now that I might now that I don't have to spend one hundred percent of my energy in getting the city to invest in our communities you know, what can, how, how can I work on policies that impact the city as a whole? You know, what are the issues that as a New Yorker that I wake up to every morning or, or that I know that my peers or my friends and neighbors deal with every single day and figure out how can I work policy that really, that really kind of resonates with everyone?
0: Like the other candidates in the race for public advocate, Espinal is running on his own
1: party line, something he calls the livable city line. Uh, livable city. I think I think we hear the term livable city anytime there's an issue that gets in the way of us as New Yorkers feeling comfortable uh, within our own communities, right? Uh, when you talk about cyclists, how they feel that the city's not doing enough to install enough bike lanes, uh, that contributes to creating a livable city. When you talk about the MTA crumbling down and people uh, spending more time uh, in, in, in uh, waiting for the train in their commutes than they do being able to be at home. Uh, that's creating a Livable City. When you talk about the fact that we can't afford uh, our apartments because of the greed of landlords and, and the skyrocketing market rates, you know, how do we tackle affordability? That creates a Livable City.
0: Ultimately, the Livable City platform is meant to acknowledge that New York has become a place where the demands for thriving here have outpaced most New Yorkers' abilities to meet them. And in order to close that gap, we need a strong voice to ensure that our elected officials working toward a more equitable city.
1: And livable city for me is creating a city uh, whose ecosystem supports all New Yorkers, right? Uh, And wants to make sure that everyone feels that they have the resources they need to live a productive life in New York City. And the reality is that trends are showing that you have to make $125,000 a year as an individual uh, to live a comfortable, livable life in New York City, to feel like you're not struggling, to pay the bills, to pay your rent. Uh, to buy the food you want to buy, maybe to be able to go out and enjoy a little bit of nightlife, uh, you have to make that salary. And the reality is a lot of New Yorkers are, are not there. And, and because of that, a lot of New Yorkers are feeling real pressure every single day when they wake up in the morning. You know, They have to go to work. They can't miss work. They have to work 12, 15 hours a day uh, to make the money they need to make to live in their homes. Uh, and we have to make sure that the infrastructure is in, in place to help support everyone and feel that New York City is their home and it's a, it's a city they can live in.
0: Part of that, of course, would mean tackling the biggest issues facing New Yorkers today, like public transportation and housing, two of the biggest issues to have emerged in the public advocate debate. In a race that can seem so confusing, the problematic state of shared infrastructure like the MTA serves as a perfectly clear example of an area where New Yorkers need a strong voice to advocate on their behalves. As Espinall points out, the very organization of the MTA seems set up in a way that can make it difficult for New Yorkers to hold the authority accountable. So
1: currently the MTA is a very convoluted um, system, right? First and foremost, it's an authority, meaning they're like a quasi-government agency, but they're independent from the government, right? So there's no real oversight over how they spend their money and what's going on within the agency. Uh, Two, uh, there is an MTA board. Uh, which is appointed by seven different elected officials, meaning the board itself is a mess, right? Uh, you know, to, to reach uh, to reach consensus and conclusions on issues, I'm sure is a long drawn out process. Uh, and three, there's really no one we can hold accountable for the fact that the EMTA is not working, right? Uh, when the when something terrible goes on, wrong, goes go, happens. Uh, the 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 governor and the mayor uh, takes a, ha- a hands off approach and say that this is not their issue, but when there's something good is being announced, you, all of a sudden you'll see them say like oh this is you know this is our idea this is how we did it. But if 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 you're not in control, how are you responsible for the good things and not responsible for the you know and responsible for the bad things?
0: While each of the public advocate candidates supports some set of reforms for the MTA, Espinall has a very specific strategy for making the MTA more clearly accountable to the public, taking it from the hands
1: of the state and putting it fully in the hands of the city. So the idea is to put the MTA, uh, solely the MTA, uh, the transit authority, in, in, in control uh, of the city's hands uh, so that the mayor uh, could be held accountable for anything that goes wrong and for the mayor to have a uh, full oversight over uh, the spending and, and, the, and, the, and the repairs that need to be done in order to maintain the system. There would
0: then, of course, be the issue of paying for those repairs. Espinal has a specific strategy here
1: as well. Uh, I, I also believe that, yes, there is a need for $40 billion. Uh, Andy Byford, the, the 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 new head that came in to create a plan of how we're going to fix the, the system, uh, put out a plan saying that over the next 10 years we need to make $40 billion in investments. I have a plan to be able to raise that money, and that's taxing Wall Street. Wall Street right now uh, currently pays the city and state of New York $11 billion in, in uh, sales taxes. But for some reason, since 1981, the city and the state has been rebating that 11 billion dollars back to Wall Street at 100%. Uh, so pretty much it's like us as an individual filing our taxes at the end of the year, paying our taxes, and then we file it, fill out a paperwork and we get all our money back. I mean that would be amazing, right? But that's what's happening in Wall Street, and that money could be used to fix our transit system. And and that's another idea I'm pushing. To make that happen. For as
0: problematic as the state of the MTA may be, the state of NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, which oversees public housing in the city, may be even worse. NYCHA buildings across the city are experiencing catastrophic maintenance issues, with residents at multiple sites periodically going without heat and hot water, and hundreds of children in NYCHA units showing high levels of lead in their blood. The most recent estimates put the total cost of all the repairs that NYCHA will need to implement— at nearly $32 billion. While investigative reports, activism from residents and organizations, and the public advocate race itself have helped bring these issues to light, Espinall points out that it's all past due.
1: I think it's also important to note that, you know, I think NYCHA residents um, have not been getting the, the, the services they need and deserve because uh, they have, have actually been in the shadows. And, you know, you need a public official to to speak up and, and use the media and the press uh, to expose what's happening within those uh, buildings. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not common knowledge that NYCHA residents can't call 311 when their ceiling is falling apart. They call NYCHA and all of the information and all of the issues that they're facing stays internally within the authority uh, so it's very hard for the public to actually know what's happening behind those buildings while you have residents who are dealing with mold, who are dealing with, you know, uh, vermin infestations, who are dealing with, with all of the issues that we normally would call for as a, private res, as a private resident in a private building and get, and get uh, the city to come in and, and, to, and to be able to address. Uh, they don't have that same luxury. Uh, so we have to shed more light, be as supportive as we can, and make sure the city and state is doing right by them.
0: As Espinal sees it, it's the responsibility of the public advocate to elevate these issues before they reach catastrophic levels and push elected officials to pursue solutions, like Espinal's proposed changes to the Wall Street trading tax, that can address these
1: issues directly. You have to be the voice of every New Yorker. And public housing, I think, is one of those examples where uh, folks' um, issues are not being amplified. Uh, I do believe that, that the stock transfer tax that I mentioned earlier regarding Wall Street uh, could fund both the MTA and NYCHA at the same time within the next 10 years. Uh, it's $11 billion. Uh, NYCHA's issues are over $30 billion. $30 billion with the, with the MTA's $40 billion, $70 billion. So over the next 10 years, uh, with $11 billion a year being recuperated from Wall Street, uh, we can pay for both these problems and there'll be money left over for other issues.
0: But with limited powers to actually pass laws or manage the budget, how might the public advocate actually help accomplish any of this? Again, it comes back to the bully pulpit and shaping the public discourse, strategies that, while maybe not fast, can be highly effective.
1: My role uh, as as public advocate uh, would be uh, to uh, push the governor um, and the state's legislature to finally pass legislation to stop refunding those rebates back to Wall Street. Uh, and I think it's important for New Yorkers to know that, you know, no elected official has the power to raise a magic wand and change anything, right? It really takes uh, the shaping of public opinion and the public uh, pressure uh, to put, put into government to actually make these changes for us. For example, like, the governor did not wake up one morning and say we have to raise the minimum wage $15, $15 an hour. You know, he woke up and made that decision because there was a lot of activism and protests and a lot of outcry for a, a more progressive uh, pay wage in the, city, in the city and state of New York. Uh, so we need folks to get involved to learn about these Wall Street taxes that are going back to the, that, that they're not paying, uh, and and actually raises an issue that our government should take on. And as public advocate, um, you know that's a, that's one of the platforms I'm running on. And hoping as 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 I'm elected, I'll be able to go to Albany and and uh, really push the, push the state to make these changes.
0: The public advocate election on Tuesday, February 26th, is the rare political election where seemingly anyone can win. There's no minimum threshold. Whoever simply receives the most votes will become our next public advocate. And with so many candidates on the ballot, that means the difference between winning and losing could be just a handful of votes. In other words, your vote in this election means more than ever. And as Espinall puts it, you'll be voting to help decide the very
1: future of the city. If you're concerned about the fact that New York City is not um, sustainable enough or putting policy goals that are going to attack climate change or aggressive enough in doing that, if you feel that the city is becoming unaffordable to you as a tenant uh, or a business owner or homeowner, if you feel that uh, our school system is failing your children and there are other policies that we can put, be putting in place uh, to improve their lives, if you feel that you're working... Um, you know 24 hours a day because your job is exploiting you through technology or, or through any other uh, form of communication uh i believe that you should uh, come out and vote in this election and vote for a public advocate that feels that understands that uh i i have a set of platforms and ideas of how we're going to tackle all of those issues and i encourage you to go to my website uh and kind of see what where what what, what direction i want to take the city in uh, but if you if, if you're concerned about like the officials making decisions that have been more reactionary and not really uh, create bold ideas for the direction our city should be headed, then this is an election for you. I think this is how we start setting the tone of how we want the next 10 years of our city to to look like.
0: In a race where so many of the candidates are running on progressive platforms, it can be hard to differentiate them. So we asked Espinal how he stands out from the other qualified New Yorkers running to be the city's next top watchdog.
1: I would say I'm the only candidate uh, who's had the courage to to, uh, make decisions Without uh, the fear of what the repercussions might be, I'm also the only millennial on stage uh, that understands, you know, the, the current trends our city is going through, and understands that there's a lot of creativity that the government's not tapping into and supporting. Uh, I also um, understand that, you know, I I believe I have a well-rounded experience of how to take the job. You know, I I've never thought I'd be in politics, but over the past seven years, I've I've been one of the most effective members in the city council.
0: Raphael, thank you so
1: much. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you want to
0: live in a New York City where the government is accountable to you and the rest of the community, remember to cast your vote on Tuesday, February 26th, for our next public advocate. The polls will be open throughout the city from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. To quickly find out if you're registered and where you can cast your vote, simply head to the New York City Board of Elections website at vote.nyc.ny.us. That's vote. Dot .nyc.ny.us To help make your decision, tune into the final candidates debate tonight, February 20th, at 7 p.m. on NY1. Check your local listings to watch it on television or head to NY1's website to stream it live. That website is NY and then the number 1.com. Rafael Espinal, along with six of the other leading candidates, will be there. You can find out more about Espinal's record and his platform at his website Rafael Espinal.nyc. That's R-A-F-A-E-L E-S-P-I-N-A-L dot N-Y-C Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Bushwick Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do us a favor and tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. If you have questions, comments, or want to get involved with Bushwick Podcast, send us an email to hello at hearbushwick.com or DM us on our Instagram page at Bushwick Podcast. We'll be back next week, and I look forward to seeing you then.